I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today grew up in Adelaide, studied at Adelaide University, wrote for the student newspaper On D, and then decided to move to Melbourne. All those things appear on my CV too, though I did them a couple of decades earlier. She's a writer, broadcaster and public speaker who has been called a fearless feminist hero and the scourge of trolls and misogynists everywhere. Clementine Ford, I'm delighted to be talking to you over video call today. You've made a name for yourself as the flamethrower of feminists in Australia who's led feminism back into the boxing ring through your articles and comment pieces that have made terms such as rape culture and slut-shaming mainstream. How would you describe your brand of feminism? I mean, everyone else seems to describe it as words like controversial and uh, uncompromising. I lean more towards the uncompromising brand, but also honest, I think is a good word for it, and no nonsense. You know, when I was a young woman at Adelaide University first discovering feminism and, you know, I, I grew up in a family that, you know, said a lot of the right things about women's aspirations and, you know, women can grow up to do and be anything that they want. And I had a sister and, you know, I often joke about my dad who is a wonderful person, but I often joke about how we were both raised in a in a family that taught us girls could do and be anything they wanted, but they had to do the dishes at home first. You know, and that was sort of, for me, as is the case for a lot of young women who are not necessarily equipped with a language to articulate their feelings of discomfort or inequality. Some of the first places that I saw it were in the distribution of domestic labour at home because I had a sister and I had a brother and my brother, funnily enough, was excused from a lot of the responsibilities that Charlotte and I had. And this was in a, you know, supposedly progressive household that didn't want us to, to believe that everything had been solved but had one rule for inside the house and one rule for outside the house. I'm very much liking that image of go conquer the world, but could you clean this fry pan first? The bottom needs a bit of a scrub. You've described yourself in your writings as a bold, boisterous girl, and yet you went on to be a teenager who battled anorexia. You talk in your book, Fight Like a Girl, of losing 30 kilograms in a school term. I mean, how extraordinary. Can you describe that transition? It was clearly related to changing perceptions of yourself and a girl's role in the world and how much space Mm. she's entitled to take up. Well, I think that there are a few things going on and some of them are common to all adolescent girls and some of them were specific to my own experience or the particular circumstances that I went through magnified some of those issues. And, you know, I grew up in the Middle East and was not really raised in an environment that was very fixated on the body, purely because of modesty laws where I lived. You couldn't dress in a certain way. And I'm not suggesting that that makes more sense for girls, but I didn't grow up watching TV. I didn't grow up seeing 
a lot of expressions of female adultness that I that then became common to me when we moved to England. But at the same time as well, we moved when I was 12 years old, which is an incredibly hard time for any adolescent to go through, particularly when you're having to leave all of your school friends behind and, and start an entirely new school in an environment where you don't really know what the cultural shorthand is for a lot of things. And, you know, I was a, I'm not going to say overweight child because again, those are flawed concepts, but I was a child who certainly was treated by other people as if somehow there was something wrong with my body. I responded to that external trauma of of having my life so drastically change and also entering the teenage years by doing what so many young girls do, which is to seek control, the control I felt I didn't have over my life, physically by minimising my body and by controlling the space that I took up, but by controlling everything that went into my mouth as well and feeling like somehow the hunger translated to some sense of power. And I think that that's a common thing for a lot of young girls in particular. And also we, again, it comes down to that thing of not being able to articulate these problems and these feelings that we're going through is that we do become quite cognizant, I think, at that age, you know, 12 or 13 of how all of the ideals we were raised with that, you know, as little girls we could sort of run and play and take up space, that somehow that was momentary for us, that we were allowed to enjoy it when we were little, but the moment that we became sexualized in other people's eyes was the moment we had to minimize ourselves and take up less space and not be big and not be boisterous and not be loud and definitely not be opinionated. And I think a lot of us go through that sort of sense of shrinking in on ourselves when we are trying to figure out who we are, but we certainly don't want anyone else to see us while we're doing it. And the thing for me that makes it so much sadder than it already is you know, I thought at the time I was a very unique person for going through this private trauma and that no one else was experiencing it at all. But of course, I realise now that it seems to be common for almost all of us. But the saddest thing probably is that nothing about it seemed so unusual to anyone else that they thought that there might be a problem. You know, a 13-year-old girl losing a third of her body weight in the space of three months was seen as a praiseworthy thing. You know, certainly in my community of people and in my family and you know this was the early 90s it was just a thing that girls did or they became teenagers and they started watching their weight and there were unique factors for you your family was moving around the world because of your father's work but can you reflect back on that time now and think if that had been the era of social media as well what would have been different would it have been better would it have been worse oh my god i am so grateful that I didn't grow up in an era of social media. I just feel like, you know, one of the things that strikes me now is I know you know what online trolling feels like. (laughs) (laughs) I, I receive a degree of that and a lot of it comes from young teenage boys. It gives me an insight. The way that they talk to me and the methods and the mechanisms that they use to try and troll me, although it's it's always bizarre. I'm not really bothered when it's teenage boys because it's just so ludicrous but the mechanisms that they use give me a real insight into what young people are kind of facing every day and that is that there's no escape from it you know when we were growing up it doesn't matter how many decades there might have been between us and you made you made that joke before but neither of us had that experience of going to school and dealing with whatever nonsense we were being subjected to at school and then having to go home and deal with it in the online space we could go home and just 
switch off, have some respite and some reprieve from bullying or from unkindness. But now there's no escape for any of these kids. They're being added to online chats, you know, they're being added to Snapchat groups and Instagram threads. And, you know, I've been added to threads that have been started by teenage boys that say terrible things about me. Again, I mean, it's it's sort of water off a duck's back now, but I think if I were a 13-year-old girl and I kept being repeatedly added to groups that had been started by either boys or girls, whoever my peers, it would be such an enormous stress and they don't have anyone to talk to about it. And of course, the backlash that still is the same, it doesn't matter how technology changes, the backlash is always the same. And that is that if you're a girl and you complain about these things, then you're whinging or you're making yourself into a victim. Or again, I know you have a very clear understanding of that. We were lucky in a lot of ways. Yeah, incredibly lucky. I agree with that because you did have the safety of home once you got home. I mean, not every child was safe at home, but my home was a place of respite for me and refuge for me. And also your points of comparison. You might have compared yourself to the prettiest girl in the class or the prettiest girl in the school, but you didn't have these bombarding with images from around the world that were curated and scrubbed up as to what women, girls were supposed to look like. I do want to move from there, though, to how does that girl find her voice as a fearless feminist? How much of a role did studying gender studies at the University of Adelaide play in that for you? Oh, it was wonderful, honestly. I mean, I don't know if so much was what I was learning because I, I'm sorry to tell you I was a really bad student. I didn't really I find that through. hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> I like to joke to people that I did a double major in gender studies and English but really excelled in student media because I spent all of my time in the on D office. But what I found wonderful about it was not necessarily the academic side of things that I was learning, but the collegiate nature of the women that I was learning them with. Because I'd gone through high school responding as a lot of young girls do to this sense of not fitting into what femininity was or or being judged as somehow lacking and not pretty enough, not the kind of girl that a boy would want to go out with, which you're taught is very important when you're a teenage girl. And I responded by really cultivating that suspicion of other women, you know, and that, well, if I can't be seen like a woman, then I'll be the best friend that a boy can have. If he doesn't want to date me, then I can be the one he at least tells all of his secrets to. You know, I'm not like other girls, that kind of nonsense that we're drawn into. So when I started university, I I came with this, not hostility towards other women, but a mistrust of them. I don't know in that context why I decided to study gender studies. Maybe there was something deeper that I was, uh, you know, obviously wanting to bring out in myself. But I met some really wonderful women there and and through that, you know, through this kind of excitement that we had of discussing these new ideas and and sharing what it was that we thought that we were learning. You know, we went after a class, we would go and sit in circles on the Bar Smith lawns and dissect everything that we'd heard about in that day's like mind-blowing lesson. And that was what made me think, oh my God, this is what it could feel like to be a part of a community of women who not only would support you and would have your back and would also provide a soft and space place for you to be yourself, but that also you didn't have to explain these concepts to. You didn't have to cushion them or minimize them in any way, the way that we had 
have been conditioned and socialized to do with men you know we, well not all men obviously and well of course most men are wonderful and I'm not talking about you and do you think maybe it's a bit strange that women feel this way and you know I'm not saying that you're the person who's making like all of this tempered language that we use constantly the sort of managerial speak that we're conditioned into that was just stripped away because you didn't have to make any of those explanations with women and for me that was the most kind of eye-opening part of those early stages was that there could be a world that I could live in where I didn't feel like the odd one out. And you took that preparedness to speak honestly and candidly with you into journalism, into a newspaper like the Sunday Mail. And for someone who grew up in Adelaide, you know, the Sunday Mail's the newspaper you get to check the sports scores and maybe... I was going to say, it's very generous to call it a newspaper. (laughs) Yeah, get the footy scores and maybe have a quick flip through. So I don't want anybody listening to this to get the impression that the Sunday Mail is usually a home for feminist discourse. But you (laughs) took your voice into the Sunday Mail and then into other mainstream media outlets and you were prepared to be honest about your own experiences, about issues like abortion, anorexia. Can you talk to me about deciding to do that? But I'm also intrigued, how did you get the editors to agree? Well, I was very fortunate because the editor who was at the Sunday Mail when I started working for them was a real champion of my work. Do you remember Matt Price? Yes, I do. I used to love reading Matt Price and watching Matt Price on the ABC. And I, at the time I was writing a blog because it was 2005 and everyone was writing a blog back then. And I wrote a few blog posts about Matt Price and someone, either he Googled himself or someone must have Googled them and sent them on to him. And he messaged the editor at the Sunday Mail and said, oh, you should get this woman to come and write for you, which was astonishing. I, had ne- I didn't study journalism. I All I had done was student media and written. Phil Gardner, who was the editor of the Sunday Mail at the time, appreciated, I think, appreciated good content and wasn't going to kind of, he wasn't from Adelaide and he didn't play that sort of conservative appealing to the stakeholders game that we used to with so much of Australian media. So Phil Gardner really championed me and gave me the confidence. I mean, I already had confidence from being in my 20s and thinking that I was untouchable and really gave me the confidence to kind of go out there all guns blazing and and think to myself, yeah, I'm going to light a firecracker underneath these old voters in Adelaide's butts. And uh, that's what I did. (laughs) I think that one of the best things I ever did, certainly as a writer who went on to be prepared to take risks, And to speak openly about issues that were important to me was one of the earliest columns I wrote was about abortion. And I'd had two abortions in my mid-20s that I'd written about before, but only sort of on my own blog. And I thought, well, I'm going to write a column about this for the Sunday Mail because it's a very common part of a lot of women's lives and we're allowed to get them. And I really wanted to dismantle some of the narratives of shame that were still, and that still are today, but much more so 15 years ago, 10 years ago, the narratives of shame that surrounded abortion and the discussion of abortion. So I wrote about having had two abortions and I deliberately didn't offer any explanation as to why I made those choices or explanation as to how I got pregnant because I always feel as well that that's something that, and it's a good example of how I think women and feminists have been 
taught to take that softly, softly approach because we think that that will be the most effective way of creating change. And in some cases, perhaps it is. But I don't think that when you're talking about reproductive and economic and political freedoms, it's been proven that taking the softly, softly approach just really doesn't work. It just makes people think that things have changed. So I wrote very openly about these two experiences that I'd had and I said I didn't regret them and I didn't feel any shame about them and and that, in fact, women shouldn't feel any shame about these choices. And, of course, I received a lot of feedback from readers you know, oftentimes I'm asked, well, how do you deal with all of the backlash and the abuse that you get? And I think that was a really effective baptism of fire for me. And the topic made it so easy to deal with because I was so passionate about it. And I had absolutely zero doubts that I'd made the right choices for myself. And I had no impulse to feel anything other than completely proud of my choice. So to receive that level of hostile feedback for something that I I knew in my heart of hearts I was right for doing, actually kind of fortified me in a way that perhaps I wouldn't have been that quote unquote strong if I hadn't taken that risk at the beginning. And the other thing as well was that I received so much feedback and so many letters from women who were grateful to see that commentary, that they'd never seen anyone say that they weren't ashamed of their choices and they'd never, perhaps in some cases, never talked about their own abortions to someone but were telling me about them because they they felt finally like they'd been given permission to feel okay about them. And that made me realise the power that you could have in a position like that and the responsibility that came with that too. Clementine, you've received endless amounts of abuse. I can't say all of the words on this podcast, but to just pick a few examples, feminazi, boner, killer, joyless harpy, jealous of the prettier girls, dumb fat cow, ugly femo, rape threats, death threats. And you've talked about how you've got to a stage where that's water off a duck's back. And I can understand that because I had to get myself there too. But in part, you get there through the sheer volume of it and the endless repetition. And that's what takes the sting out of it. What could you say to a woman who's just thinking about being more out there about her feminism about how to get to that point. I mean, it's not very reassuring, is it, for either of us to be saying, look, the strategy through is just endure and at the end you won't take it as personally as you did at the start. Well, no, it's not, but it's the terrible reality of it. The language is not going to stop until we change society and we're not there yet. I do get asked that question a lot, how do you deal with it? And as you said, it's the repetition and the sheer volume of it. At some point it just becomes noise. There's only so many times you can be called that before it just sounds like words. And one thing that I often say in reply to that is exactly as you've kind of pointed out that it's a lot easier for women like you and I who've been subjected to such an overwhelming volume of it to wake up one day and go, you know what, it's just doesn't really mean anything to me anymore. But if you're someone who is nervous about hearing that online because you don't actually get subjected to that language day in and day out and so it still carries that weight of violence and fear for you, I can completely understand why women would be hesitant to throw their hat into the ring. What I end up saying is that for me, the way that I feel now, having a strong and powerful and fearless voice, despite everything that is said to me in response feels so much less suffocating than before when I was too afraid to speak up because I was worried about what men would say to me in in response. 
once you are liberated or once you help liberate yourself from the fear of what men think of you and the fear of what they'll say to you in order to get you to shut up, there's really nothing that's kind of holding you back. And and that feeling for me, I'm not sure if it's been the same for you because it's different circumstances, but that feeling for me has been extremely liberating and freeing. But I would be interested to know how you feel given that I had the luxury and still have the luxury of being able to say whatever I want in response because I don't work for anybody but myself. And to an extent, anyone who does choose to work with me knows exactly what they're getting. Whereas you, when you were prime minister and being subjected to the worst sexism, not just from members of the public, but from people who you had to actually work with in the government, you didn't have that same luxury. The fact that you were able to come through that with your head held high is phenomenal. And it's something that almost no man would understand. And certainly no man who is offering commentary on women's capacity to perform in government. Yeah, I I feel like there's a couple of strategies when there's that level of abuse. I mean, and I've talked about this with guests on the podcast. Some people feel that it's best to ignore it. You don't feed it. It's better for their mental health to ignore it. Others feel like you should engage with it, give it back to them. We're never going to change things unless we have that clash. And clearly, you've been someone who's prepared to have that clash and actually um, have a retort when people have been so abusive towards you. The circumstances I was in, it was almost like the decision was overwhelmingly made for me. You can't be in the business of tit for tat. You've just got to put it to one side and get on through. And I did end up playing quite a few mental games with myself to enable me to do that. I mean, there was almost a bit of a thinking about myself, the public me, almost in a third person rather than taking in all of that abuse as about the real human being underneath. So there was a bit of holding it at a distance But that ultimately has a cost and something I just had to push my way through. But as I reflect back on it now, I'm probably even more conscious of the cost than I was in the days that I was living through it and every day needed to get back up and kind of get my game face on and go and do it again. So there's no right or wrong answer in any of this. I mean, it seems to me that you've got yourself to a stage where depending on where you are in that moment, you'll engage or you'll ignore. And the fact that you make different choices probably irritates those men who are abusing you worse than anything because they can't tell if this is going to be a day that you're going to say something back or this is just going to be a day where you turn their volume down and just wander away and don't worry about them. I think it's probably the more frustrating thing for a lot of men who take such issue with me. It's not even necessarily what I say, it's that I refuse to to exclude them from the problem. And that, that's probably been the cause of, of most backlash against me, I think, is I suggest that this is a problem for all men to be a part of solving as opposed to giving them the out. That You know, I remember actually years ago I did a lunchtime lecture at the Wheeler Centre and it was about how gender equality hadn't been achieved yet. And this man stood up halfway through this and he interrupted me and he basically made the argument that, of course, we have gender equality because, look, we had Julia Gillard a female prime minister. And I, th- I thought it's so funny that 
in making that point, you've stood up and interrupted me while I'm talking because you need to be heard. This would be one of the things that challenged a lot of men about you as well was that you're capable and obviously powerful and strong and smart and they wanted you and they want women to cater to them and they want women to pander to them and to somehow exclude them from being a part of the solution. So when when we have Scott Morrison now standing up and saying, you know, on International Women's Day last year that, yes, of course, we want gender equality, but not if it means men missing out on something or not if it means men losing something. And I mean, that's a moronic thing to say, but it really does reflect how a lot of people feel that they will nominally give their support to gender equality and to the idea that women could achieve in, you know, equal status to men. But the practical reality of that means that men are going to have to lose some stuff. In following up that thought about the role of men, you've been quite outspoken about how we're selling feminism short if we engage in lots of celebrations and applause for men who are really doing a bit but not necessarily anything profound in the cause of of gender equality. And yet a lot of people would counter that by saying, well, look, men are overwhelmingly the holders of power in our society, so if they are not persuaded, welcomed into the change agenda, then we won't get there. How do you weigh that up in your mind? Did the suffragettes ask nicely for the vote and get the vote? (laughs) That's not my recollection of uh, suffragette history, no. (laughs) People love to perpetuate this myth that somehow change will come about by us just being nicer about asking as if somehow women haven't for centuries been nice to men and asked politely and sweetly and used that aforementioned managerial speak to try and get what we want. I'm not suggesting that people take up arms, although I'm not not suggesting that too. What I want is for people to start being honest about what is really going on here and what's going on is protection of power. And by insisting that women be nice to men and be persuasive, what we're really saying is that even in changing the world, we need to replicate the exact same power structures that have got us here in the first place. If we continue to praise men for doing a bit, not even doing the right thing, but just doing a bit, say we were somehow magically and actually completely unexpectedly to achieve this state of gender equality by being very, very nice to men and having a parade every year in their honour for being so wonderful that they would give us this equality. What happens then when we turn around one day in the future and we say, well, isn't it wonderful that we've got all this gender equality now? Do Do you think maybe the final thing that we need to do to really shore up the fact that we are all equal now is to maybe stop the parades? I don't think that men would like that very much. So for me, I feel like there's no point in trying to change the system that we live in by replicating the structures of the system itself. You know, it's really easy to say things like, oh, we need to dismantle patriarchy. Obviously, you need to have a plan to do that. But the fact of the matter is the system that we live in and everything that kind of represents patriarchal power has been designed certainly with men's power in mind. So we can't actually achieve gender equality within the system that we live in by replicating what it looks like. We need to start with something completely fresh and new. 
And one of the things that I think is so integral to that is in moving forward to the kind of world that we want to live in is to abandon this practice that has been conditioned into us so deeply that we need to be so bloody nice to men all the time. We don't need to be nice to them. We just need to be human to them. And they in turn should treat us like human beings and not like people who exist to flatter them. And if you were putting a time frame on when are we going to get to that world, the world that you speak of so powerfully and so persuasively, I want to live there. When are we going to get there? Are there things that make you optimistic? Yeah, obviously you have to be optimistic. Otherwise, what's the purpose? You just go and live on an island somewhere, which also sounds quite nice. Change moves at a glacial pace, not because of a lack of agitation from the people trying to create change, but because of the obstinate refusal of the people who are threatened by that change to actually make way for it. You know, another example that I like to use is old Tony Abbott. When Tony Abbott was prime minister and he assembled a cabinet of 19 people, only one of whom, of course, was a woman who had to be there because she was the deputy prime minister. And I remember him saying, The women, they were knocking on the door of the cabinet. They weren't quite there yet, but they were knocking on the door. And, of course, Tony Abbott always had a a really – he had a great skill for making it seem like it was women's fault. And I remember thinking when he said that, well, of course they can't get in the door because there's 18 men standing on the other side of it holding it shut and saying that they don't have right to access. And I also say to people, what would have happened if – when you were Prime Minister, if Julia Gillard had assembled a cabinet of 19 people, only one of whom was a man, no one would have turned around and said, oh, well, it's about merit, isn't it? They're obviously the best people for the job. It would have been a misandrist conspiracy led by you, who was clearly a witch, who was trying to create an Australia that they certainly did not want to live in. When people say things like, oh, well, we have gender equality already, or there's not that much further to go, These are very obvious examples of exactly how deeply entrenched those beliefs are that people still have about women's capacity and women's right to even be a part of constitutional representation. So I'm not optimistic really that it will fully turn around in my lifetime even, but what I am optimistic about and what I think is certainly for me much more worth focusing on is not changing men's behavior so much, but is in, is in empowering women to realize that they can lead the charge themselves. Instead of being nice to men or instead of trying to persuade men to our side, I mean, women make up more than 50% of the population and we are incredibly powerful and very good at community work together. And, and, and together as a force, certainly something to be reckoned with. And patriarchy has in part relied on and traded on encouraging men to circle the wagons around each other and encouraging men to work together and having a code of brotherhood in exactly the same way and with exactly the same force that it has relied on dividing and conquering women and making us believe that we shouldn't work together, that there is only room for one of us to have success, that there is only room for one official woman, and that in order for us to succeed in this world, we need to convince men that we are no threat to their power. And we do that by turning against other women. My motivation is no longer to try and change men's minds. My motivation is to try and bring women over to my side. And to a woman who's starting out, your key advice, it seems to me, certainly in Fight Like a Girl, is find your friends, find your female friends, find your your crew, the people who you're going to be with, you're going to 
get sustenance from, you're going to bounce ideas around with, women who are going to have your back. How did you go about that? I mean, you've obviously found that at Adelaide University in gender studies, but how have you found it in the rest of your life? What's the way of making sure that you have that network around you that is protective, sustaining, challenging? I've been really fortunate to have had wonderful relationships with women, collegiate, emotional, deep friendships that have been, as you said, sustaining and life-affirming. And one of the reasons why I encourage that so much is we need to unlearn and unpack a lot of the conditioning that we've had throughout our lives that do teach us that women are not to be trusted and that success is not found through surrounding ourselves with women but by making sure that we're the only woman in the room. So to be able to have those relationships with women where you don't need to hide who you are I think is powerful but also it gives you power. It reminds you that you're not crazy and one thing that history and patriarchy has been very successful in doing is making women think that we're crazy. I do want to take you to your experiences with Facebook. Can you describe what happened to you with Facebook? I think it's just the quintessential example of the difference between how male speech gets treated as opposed to women's speech. Well, Facebook, as we know, is very respectful towards women. (laughs) So about five years ago, I posted a photograph of myself in response to Sunrise, which is a morning breakfast show here in Australia. And Sunrise takes a very conservative view on lots of things and appeals to, you know, what you would call the lowest common denominator. About five years ago, there was a terrible story that had come out of Adelaide where around 400 girls and women had had their photographs stolen um, by a group of boys online and their nude photographs stolen and shared. And, of course, you know, victim-blaming rules supreme and a lot of people in the community were saying, well, they bloody shouldn't have taken those photographs in the first place, which is ridiculous and awful. But Sunrise came out and suggested the same thing. They posted something on their Facebook page saying, when will girls learn? And so I posted a photograph in response that uh, essentially called out Sunrise for victim blaming and for harmful discussion, I think, around the topic. You know, these girls did nothing wrong by sharing these photographs or taking them. The illegal act was in stealing them. In response to that, of course, I received an appallingly high amount of abuse and threats from men online. And when I started sharing them on my Facebook page, I got banned because I'd somehow violated their community policy by sharing private messages, and which just sort of highlighted it's always been easier to control women's behaviour in response to men than it has been to ask men to change that behaviour. And one of the most blatant examples that I can think of is I remember having an argument with someone once who, uh, you know, we were talking about victim blaming, and he said, oh, well, if you leave, if you leave all of your possessions out on the lawn and someone comes and steals them, can you really blame them? And I was like, well, yes, because that's against the law still. It doesn't matter whether or not you've put your desk on the front lawn. If it's on your front lawn, someone still can't steal it. But I said, you know, it's up to us to change the behaviour of men. And he said, oh, how how do you expect to change the behaviour of 11 million people? And I said, well, isn't it funny that no one has ever 
seemed to consider it intimidating the thought of changing the behavior of every single woman in the world because of course we we always have to change our behavior and minimize ourselves and, and accommodate men and it's really frightening to people to think that men would ever have to curb anything they did or ever have to be different and and something I think is what I would love for the listeners of this podcast to consider deeply is that we are often told and feminists in particular are often reminded in very berating terms, that not all men, most men are decent, most men would never tolerate misogyny, they would always challenge men if they saw other men displaying misogyny, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet actually the evidence that we have for that is the complete opposite, is that men are either neutral in the face of it because they perceive speaking up to be a threat to their own social status or something that will cause men to turn on them, or they double down and join in on the pack. If that weren't true, we would have a lot more men speaking out against misogyny when they saw it and not instead defending behaviour as, you know, locker room talk or just boys being boys or it was just a joke or the boys don't deserve to be punished for it, whatever it might be. Everyone is always looking to seek an excuse for a boy or a man who has made a choice about how they would like to harm a woman. And yet we are also expected to not somehow be upset about that or to acknowledge all of the good men who didn't do that thing but certainly didn't speak up against it. Absolutely. Clearly, the feminist passion continues to sustain you. What's next for Clementine Ford? Well, I might do a TikTok of your misogyny speech in Parliament. That's (laughs) very popular online at the moment. Um, I've you know, seen that. Maybe we'll do a duet together, Julia. You can do one with me. It'll go viral. If only I could sing. <laughs> I really enjoy being a mum, although it's very challenging. And the project of raising a boy is one that is completely terrifying, but also where I feel like I can do some real good. I think I'm 38 now and I'm really enjoying seeing other young women find that fire and that passion in themselves. and doing nicer things for me you know it's you can't live in that world of being constantly prepared for battle all the time and I think one of the most important things that I've learned over the years is that you're not solely responsible for this for the success of the movement it's imperative that people take a break and sit down and trust that the choir will cover the notes that you're not there to sing while you're catching your breath I feel like at the moment I'm kind of catching my breath a little bit and I'm I'm enjoying that and I'm enjoying delving into softer things and, you know, doing more comedy and writing about love and nice things. But everything, of course, because I am a feminist and because I'm political, everything will always be governed by that political core. But I guess I'm excited to see what the next 10 years brings in terms of, of where my interests lie. I love that, the choir continuing to sing while you take a breath. I'm going to bring us now to the questions we use to end our podcast. We always ask our guest to comment on a fact. And the fact for you is more young people are happy branding themselves with the F word, feminist. 63% of 18 to 24-year-olds call themselves feminists as opposed to just 40% of people over 75. Is that a cause for hope? Absolutely. It's still not high enough, but (laughs) no, no, I'm very encouraged by that. Young people, they're so much more switched on than I was at their age. And I feel really hopeful when I see 
the methods that they're using, which may seem a little foreign to us, but that are effective in their own way. And yeah, I think that that's, I think that's wonderful. And look, it's always been a lie that people don't want to embrace feminism. You know, men love to tell women that you're the reason why no one wants to identify as a feminist and all, you know, most women don't identify. It's like, well, if they don't, why are you so worried about it? I think you'll find that they do and you just don't like it. You know, my favourite is when people say, oh, well, I I support the real feminists, like the second wavers. And I'm like, I don't think so. I don't think that if you were in 1975 that you'd be out there marching with them. I mean, those those women were even more badass than any of us. What's the worst misogyny you've had to face? I think that certainly witnessing what happened to you was a reminder of how deeply entrenched it all is and it was demoralising because you realised that you could ascend to literally the highest office in the land and people would still treat you like you didn't deserve to be there. I remember when people would say things, you know, if I argued about how sexist people were to you, people would respond, well, oh, well, you know, everyone gets it, everyone in power gets it. People made fun of John Howard's eyebrows. Like there was any equivalency between that and the, the things that cartoonists got away with drawing about you. It's not any single example, but it's realising that there is a language of misogyny that is so innate to so many people that is their native language almost. Sometimes it feels, on your on your less optimistic days, it feels like you are trying to push a big barrel of shit up a mountain and it's it's almost inconceivable that you could possibly get to the top. If you were given all the power in the world for a day and you had to pick one thing you could change for women, what would it be? Uh, Well, look, for me, I think that one of the most fundamental keys to women achieving autonomy and liberation in the world is total control over their reproductive freedom. So to be able to, to dictate the size of their families, if they have families at all, and to be in complete control and mastery of that would unlock a lot of other options for them. Virginia Woolf says, the history of men's opposition to women's emancipation is more interesting perhaps than the story of that emancipation itself. Clementine says? Well, I mean, I think that that quote is accurate. It's like when people say, you know, we talked about earlier that people say, love to say things like, oh, well, men gave women the vote. No, you didn't. Don't take credit for that. Don't take credit for that. Not when women were being killed and tortured because they went out and fought for their right to have a political say. The opposition is something and the history of men's opposition that is still currently being enacted to women's emancipation or women's desire to just be seen as humans has never been a story that men wanted to be told. And for that alone, it probably is more interesting. Virginia Woolf, she's got a million good sayings. (laughs) Thank you very much for this discussion. I very much enjoyed it, even doing it virtually. It's been terrific to see you on screen and to have an opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for asking me. I feel absolutely thrilled. This is a career highlight for me. And can I just say that you were, without a doubt, the best Prime Minister that Australia has ever had. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. 
This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with Kings Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.